with Science Channel's podcast producer Trent here. This episode of the podcast is a very special episode. It is an in-conversation event that we recorded in association with Blue Dot for their Weekend in Outer Space, uh, an online series of events they did this past weekend, which is, of course, when there was meant to be the actual Blue Dot Festival and Cosmic Shambles team were going to be up there doing all sorts of events at Jodrell Bank. But sadly, like so many things, that isn't happening in 2020. So we did a very special headline event for them as part of the weekend in outer space. Robin and Professor Brian Cox chatting to Andrean. Andrean, of course, the co-creator of Cosmos with her late husband, Carl Sagan, the director of the Golden Record. Voyager Project, uh, creator and co-writer of the two new series of Cosmos, many books with Carl Sagan, uh, co-producer of the Contact film, Emmy winner, Peabody Award winner, one of the finest people on this here, Pale Blue Dot. And of course, remember, you can support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Get yourself lots of extra bonus shows and live streams and everything on there during this uh, period where we can't be out doing all of our live shows. So here is that conversation between Robin and Brian and Anne. Hope you enjoy. Hello, welcome to this special event as part of Blue Dot's Weekend in Outer Space, presented in association with the Cosmic Shambles Network. I'm Robin Ince. And I'm Brian Cox. And uh, yeah, it's, it's wonderful when we work without a script, isn't it? It was uh, I should have given you some kind of nod or that it's your, it's your line, you're Brian Cox, you're Brian Cox again today. I don't think we should need to script that. We've done what, about no. a, a thousand monkey cage hours? Well, that's what I was hoping. I was hoping the Pavlovian response to I'm Robin Ince's and I'm Professor Brian Cox. Um, anyway, well, you can check out all the other events happening over this weekend as part of the Weekend in Outer Space. And that's just at discoverthebluedot.com. And uh, you can also find out about all the ongoing live stream events and podcasts from the Cosmic Shambles Network, including our regular Sunday science Q&As at cosmicshambles.com. Um, of course, this weekend, which we, we did the uh, the we were the very first act, I think, at the very first Blue Dot, weren't we, Brian? That was when was that? Nineteen sixty. <laughs> yeah, it was. I remember we were introduced by Wavy Gravy. Uh, he said, "Careful, someone's been putting some bad physics around. You know, don't watch out for some of the physics." Um, but no, it was yeah, it was it was uh, about I think five years ago, four or five years ago, and we went on. Uh, we were followed by uh, public service broadcasting, and then Underworld. Uh, that was a good night. Yeah, I think we had John Coleshaw. Charlotte Church uh, was there as well. That's as right. Well. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that was fantastic. But anyway, so um, this weekend, of course, because of everything that is going on, uh, people are not assembling. In, well, I was going to say they're not assembling in a field, but I suppose we're always assembling in some kind of field, aren't we, Brian? That's a very interesting science joke that you've just made there. You're referring to the quantum fields which permeate the universe. So, yes, in that sense. Well, actually, in a sense, it's not that we are because that assumes or implies that we're somehow separate from the fields when of course we are of the fields so that's, oh, that's I, also I, rather I 60s, love it when you it? sound like a hippie hey everyone we're of we're the fields, of the fields. We, we are both of the fields and of the field this is going to be very multi-layered well, this is going to be a only, broadcast in well, a superposition there the, i mean you're primarily made of quarks and electrons well actually entirely made of quarks and electrons and there's only one electron field 
there's an electron field in the universe and uh, part of it are the the small localized vibrations that are called robinins so you are all small localized vibrations at this moment you are all in fields and of fields and by the field so even though you may well be sat alone watching this and you were imagining that you were actually going to be uh in a field you are still so that's good in a field and of the field um so anyway yeah blue dot is doing loads of stuff uh, over the weekend and uh they, they are trying to make sure there is still some kind of sensation of a festival and uh today can i just say that you, you've turned into a, essentially a professional dj yeah because you're doing that thing where you fail and you go yes and of course uh, blue dots is on our weekend you can see our stuff at cosmic shambles.com and it's all it's all extremely disconcerting to me because of all the people i know are professional i wouldn't have put you at the top of the list but oh, this look not the original means to... it's, it's a totally different program they're using for me this time <laughs> it, it's you know the way in this holographic universe apparently they've swapped the projector now and whatever two-dimensional reality is not the previous two-dimensional reality of me you saw before yeah that's how it works isn't it that's pretty roughly roughly speaking uh, a reasonable explanation of the holographic principle but we are we today. Hey, we can't stay on topic. No, because there is a, that, that's the trouble, isn't it? There's so many ideas, and each time you see that shiny thing, you think, "Oh, that's that's interesting. Let's go there." So this is meant to be a 45-minute conversation that's coming up, but it probably won't be. And it is. It's fantastic for I would say for for both of us because um, we're going to be talking to Andrian, who is uh, one of the reasons that Monkey Cage exists. One of the reasons I would say to some extent that you took the the journey you took as well and into being a scientist is is her work with Carl Sagan and Stephen Soto. That's right. Um the so when I was what, 11 years old, so it'd be 1979, 1980, um Cosmos was broadcast and it was and remains to this day a tremendous influence on me. It was the time when I suppose if you ever need that little bit of extra reassurance that you want to be an astronomer, which is what I wanted to be, then you're, you're sat there and you're 11 years old. And for 13 weeks, every, I don't remember what night it was, Monday night or Tuesday night, for 13 weeks, you get an hour of what I still think is the finest science documentary ever made. And uh, what it, if you haven't seen it, by the way, um, it's still it not only stands up today, but I say still, I think, retains that that position. And the reason is, uh, and I think you'll see this when we talk to Anne, is that Anne, Carl and Stephen had a, a strong conviction that science is not just about science. It's about it's about culture. It's about our civilization. It is one of the necessary foundations for our civilization. And Cosmos was one of the first science documentaries I saw that didn't try to separate the science away from everything else that exists. And I, so I think that it's a powerful, it's, it's polemical, it's political, it's all the things that science should be. And it does, and it, I remember, again, I was about the same age as you, uh, and uh, despite all exterior evidence, and uh, it is just that remarkable thing where every time I go back to it, and I think I probably watch it once every two years. I think, oh, it's time to watch Cosmos again. There's always something which still seems revelatory, even though I've heard it so many times before. That first real, I, I mean, I imagine perhaps for you as well, the first sense of the size of the universe is in watching Cosmos. It's like that, wow, that is, you know, th that and reading Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the fact that you can have, you're allowed 
to have a sense of wonder. In fact, the the cosmos demands a sense of wonder. And from that moment when the Vangelis soundtrack comes in, which I want to ask Anne about, actually, how did that happen? Uh, and then the, the, those first words that Carl Sagan utters on the clifftop with the, the waves rolling in. And you can do it because you have a great Carl Sagan impression. So, Cosmos is everything there is, everything there was, and everything there ever will be. And it is. Now, that alone, that's a revelation, isn't it? It's a revelation to an 11-year-old. Yeah. So we're going to be talking to uh, Anne about her, her work on the Golden Record, uh, the, the, the vital, incredibly important work in science communication over uh, the last, it's, it's now over 40, nearly 50 years. Um, and and would have actually been in Macclesfield or near Macclesfield, of course. This is the, uh, something that uh, I, I, I imagine she'll make sure she can get near Macclesfield next year. I perhaps she probably, I've, I'm quite sure, been to Macclesfield before for Jodrell Bank, but she was going to be at Blue Dot, and now she is at this version of Blue Dot. Welcome to Virtual Macclesfield. Anne, thank you so much for joining hey, us. Hey, you are two of my favourite guys. I'm thrilled to be with you. Now, we're going to start because, of course, the festival is named after Pale Blue Dot. So we we need to start off by talking. I mean, I mean, it seems such an intriguing thing that such an important photograph, such an important image had to be fought for. You know, now that, to, well, before we even get there, do you remember your first sensation when you saw that image? Yes, I do. I, uh, you know, and of course... I'd be the first to admit that, uh, you know, our, our memories can't be entirely trusted. But this is the way I remember it. Uh, and that is uh, Carl coming back with a hard copy of the picture. And the two of us staring at it for a very, very long time. And, you know, for me, obviously for Carl, who had been fighting for this since 1981, and so uh, for more than 10 years. And the response always was, well, what's the scientific value? It'll burn out the cameras. And of course, this was going to be the very last picture of what, 10,000 pictures that uh, Voyager 1 had taken, that, you know, something on that order. And, you know, Carl, he's such a in so many ways, he was so brilliant. But I think he understood that we needed to see a reflection of our true circumstances in the universe, not the Apollo frame-filling image, which had all, was also a kind of cultural sea change for the world. But to see our world, the way it really looks in the context of the solar system, let alone you know, the infinitely greater cosmos. And um, it wasn't very long after that that Carl began writing his his meditation on the pale blue dot. And, uh, and I stuck a few phrases in there. And I remember seeing the picture and somehow in my movie memory, we cut to that moment in our living room when he's dictating his pale blue dot passage and I'm you know suggesting a phrase here and there but it was truly carved and uh, what I love so much about it is that it's that moment that intersection of science 
and civilization of, of our spiritual awareness of who we really are and our true circumstances. You don't need an advanced degree to get it. You, it's such an indictment of the nationalist, the chauvinist, the polluter, the fossil fuel distributor. It's all right there in that tiny, in that tiny one pixel earth. And, um, you know, I have a boundless number of reasons to be proud of Carl, but that's certainly up there in the top 10. And your um, involvement on Voyager went back quite a long way before that, of course, because you curated the Golden Record. Um, could you talk a bit about that, how you became involved in the project and, and specifically about the Golden Record, which is another example of something actually we, we just talked about in the in the introduction, which is the the, the, the way that, that both you and Carl had this um, the insight to, to to connect science with wider culture and with civilization and with politics and as I just said in the introduction I should say we recorded it before you came on you said exactly what what I just said I loved about Cosmos and your work which is that that is an important part of space exploration and science. Absolutely I you know I think the uh, our civilization was built on this foundational myth that if you partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, you will be damned. You will, your life will be ruined. That, and that's so often the depiction of the scientist, even now, although it's changed for the better. But it's always, you know, the alienated, messed up, the person who can't love, uh, the person to whom all those spiritual experiences are foreclosed because they know too much somehow. And Carl uh, was that perfect blend of both skepticism and wonder, never one at the expense of the other. He was tearing down walls, the walls that siloed the different scientific disciplines. He was you know, wildly interdisciplinary, but moreover, he was a true citizen, a small d Democrat, who really believed that science belongs to all of us, not just because it's our birthright, because all of these, you know, very ambitious scientific research programs are paid for, for the most part, by all of us, but also because you can have a democratic society in which people are ignorant. You can't, uh, you know, and we are living through one of the most horrendous uh, examples of, of that problem, that especially in a, in a society that's totally dependent on science and high technology, our future depends on sharing that knowledge with the widest possible um, public. And, you know, Brian, as you know, you can be a, a really first-rate scientist and be very committed to doing your science. And yet, even now, when you go before the public, very often, you know, colleagues have a certain kind of resentment, which is the opposite of really of, of a rational response, which is yes, 
go out and touch people with the splendor and the the power and the joy of, of this knowledge so that it is widely distributed as ever. And so, you know, I think Carl um, would largely have been Carl if I had never entered his life because he was already on a trajectory. He was a true, uh, I hate to say humanist because it leaves out so many other species, but he was that kind of person. But I think, uh, you know, the combination of, of the two of us um, was somehow a little bit greater than the sum of our parts because I had certain passionate uh, political beliefs that came to science because of my love for the pre-Socratic philosophers who were materialists. I was fascinated before I even knew Carl with the invention of of materialism and in the sense of of saying you can't you can't use God did it or the gods did it as an explanation for nature. And here we are, probably more at odds with nature than at any time in the history of our species. And we have to get right with nature and and a, a knowledge, uh, a respect. I know of no better way to respect nature than the scientific method, which is looking to nature for the answers and not projecting our fears and desires. Do you think there is something as well as, as someone who is not a trained scientist? Um, we were talking to Jane Goodall the other day, and Jane, of course, was not a trained scientist, and that's why she could go into Gombe and she would do things in a way which, when she went back to the scientists, they would go, you've done it all wrong, despite yeah. the fact, of course, what she actually did was, in, you know, and remains incredibly enlightening. Do, do you feel that being, working together, going, you are very passionate about science, but you haven't necessarily gone through some of the process that may well sometimes have have knocked out your desire to go in certain directions. Do you think that meant when the two of you worked together, there was perhaps sometimes a, a tension which really helped illuminate? Yes, yes. Well, first of all, you know, my my highest props to Jane Goodall because, you know, until until she came along, as you well know, uh, the study of our non-human primate relatives was confined confined to those who were in prison. As if you, as if you would only study humans in a maximum security prison and think that you knew the full spectrum of human experience and behavior. So she is the great revolutionary who has taken her her knowledge and used it in the interest of all of us in such a way that's so inspiring. Um, for me, you know, the problem with me is that because I don't have scientific training, I very often come up against the vast pockets of ignorance in my own, uh, you know, in my own knowledge. And so part of me wishes I had done the math and, you know, stuck it out, even though it was a very intimidating um, course for women of that time. And uh, I give the highest credit to the great uh, female scientists who who stuck it out, like, you know, Vera Rubin, who were willing to take that kind of abuse. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, that my passion for science is also because, you know, I've never had to 
write a grant proposal, or I've never had to live in those academic circles and, you know, develop, you know, any kind of resentment. And so to me, it's just a feast of knowledge and ideas that I find more exciting than from virtually any other source. Okay, can I ask you about the um, voyages specifically? Yes, because we're talking about Pale And so I, I, I thought it'd be interesting just to know the history of how you got involved with the project, yes, uh, because this is the most iconic spacecraft, I think that's ever been launched and we're still talking to both of them which is a wonderful thing i know we're still i get on twitter you know i get that little report every single week of you know we voyager one and voyager two so how it came about was that carl and i had worked together on one project previous to the voyager record and that was a a, a cosmos for kids uh which we uh, were commissioned to work on by the Children's Television Workshop of Sesame Street fame. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it was one of those projects that never got produced. But in, the, in, the, in 1976, Carl and I had a chance to think together, and it was sublime. It was... You know, I always compare it to two sea mammals, you know, making their way through the ocean, you know, communicating almost wordlessly. And so when the Voyager record, uh, you know, when Frank Drake and, and Carl began discussing the Voyager record, he knew of my uh, passion for music and, uh, and not just European or Western American music, but for world music, which really wasn't yet, it wasn't, uh, yeah, it didn't exist. Uh, you know, it was a very, go back to the 1970s, and it is a very, you know, uh, a time of extreme cultural imperialism. Well, you really didn't know what was happening in the, in the other countries of the world. And so, naturally, Carl who's only, uh, you know, who admitted to one chauvinism, only one. And that is, if you look, I think it's in The Dragons of Eden or one of his earliest books. If you look in the index under chauvinism, it's carbon. And so that was, you know, he admitted to being a carbon chauvinist about extraterrestrial life. I, I'm not sure which book it was. Uh, and, and so, of course, he was open to all these other cultures. And, um, and then uh, a very dear friend of mine, who was uh, I considered to be a real expert on music, Jonathan Cott, he introduced me to Alan Lomax. And there was Alan Lomax's apartment in, uh, in, in Manhattan. And it was a warren, like a rabbit warren of 50,000 discs of music and he would just pop one on the machine and uh, he was responsible for a number of suggestions candidates for the record and my mind was completely blown and uh, so that's how it came about and then I asked him if I could do a sound essay was that a crazy idea to use a microphone as a kind of camera to document the geological and biological and then technological sounds 
And he said, yes. So I started making a list in this very house where I am right now, sitting at the same dining room table and writing down cricket song and all of these things that that were so beautiful to me. And then um, a few weeks later, I said to him, is this a crazy idea? But is it conceivable that if I were to meditate for, let's say, an hour with you know, my rapid eye movement, my, my EEG, my brain, my EKG, my heart, uh, all of those sounds being recorded, and I meditated, would it be conceivable that these putative extraterrestrials of ours could decrypt what I was thinking? And by the way, it's only 41 years, no, 43 years later, and we are so much closer to being able to do that when we were back then. And I remember it was a beautiful day, and Carl looked at me and said, a million years is a long time, Annie. Go do it, you know? And as <laughs> I said many times, it was the, you know, that meditation took place within 72 hours of uh, these two humans working on this mythic project, a message to perhaps five billion with a B years from now, circumnavigating the Milky Way galaxy perhaps eight or a dozen times. And here we are, and it was just on that beautiful June 1st that after knowing each other for years, working together, being alone together, you know, but both involved with other people and very uh, old-fashioned. Finally, telephone call, found that perfect piece of Chinese music, music from a continuous 2,500-year-old tradition. What, what arrogance for us who knew nothing about Chinese music to say that we could find that one piece to confer a kind of the closest thing to immortality that any of us are likely to touch. Found that piece of Chinese music, which had been the, you know, the real challenge throughout the project and left a message for Carl in Tucson and the rest is history. So I, uh, you know, to me, the Voyager record is the best possible example of the marriage of our highest technology at the time, our science, our engineering, our mathematics, all functioning flawlessly, and also our culture, our feelings, what it is to be human, what it is to be a cricket, you know, on a summer night singing out, and what it was for some of our ancestors. And so, that's how I got to do it. And then that was, you know, then we got to do a lot more together for the next 20 years until his death. And all of it was, I just, you know, I just, my only problem is that my ability to retrieve the memories of every single minute we were together is so limited. There is something 
on that golden record, because it's not merely a good introduction to Earth for extraterrestrials, it's a good introduction to Earth for terrestrials, because I remember when we played it, but we, we did, a, I think it was a tour about 10 years ago we did, Brian, and we decided to have our intro music for it for 45 minutes beforehand as they came into the, the auditorium was golden record. And you would see people sitting there going, oh, but what's this? What? And slowly becoming engaged. So I think that's a beautiful thing in it as well. You know, it, it's, it's important for all of us to, to, I think, keep returning to it. There, there, there's so much beauty and, and looking at the photos as well. There, there, there is, thank you, Robin. I, I am so happy you feel that way because I am, people sometimes say to me, if you were making a golden record now, what would you put on it? And I always say, you know, it's for someone else to do that. We gave it everything we had, and we really put our best foot forward. And I look back on uh, all of the music, and there's not a single wince. You know, there's not a single moment where you go, what was I thinking? And uh, I have to say that I had the occasion to watch episode two from Cosmos, A Personal Voyage the other day. Uh, in preparation for a talk, and I was so proud of us because how many things that were done 41 years ago can you watch now and say, wow, you know, we trace the pathway of human evolution, and what is the end, what is the, the, the latest version of human evolution? It's a proud woman. You know, we did this wonderful sequence about uh, about medieval Japan, and all the actors are Japanese, and it's in Japan. And you know, every single sequence was, uh, I think, you know, really has withstood the test of time. Those values that we had then, you know, to see the world coming around to to re-embrace them is so thrilling. I Can so. I just ask just one more thing? Oh, go on. You've got the golden oh, record. Out, I was just going to say, I was looking through the, I was looking through the book, uh, the golden record book. You know, the photographs on it, and there are so, as you say, it's it's interesting at the time. So we, in the late nineteen seventies, uh, it's a, it's a US project. It's in America in the late nineteen seventies, and the idea that you managed to, I suppose, persuade NASA. Or to, to get enough freedom from NASA to have this genuinely, a genuine celebration of the world. I don't think it would happen now, actually. I think it would be, you'd be in the current climate uh, and in probably in any climate. I think for, for, for a single country to, to celebrate the entire world is, is, is quite an achievement, actually. And as I said, I was just looking through the pictures there. It's not centred on American culture at all. At it's all. just centred on culture. And that, that's so true. And I remember when we completed the record, which was also in June, that fabulous June, we did have two uh, administrative people from NASA come to CBS Records in New York where we were mastering the record and to listen. And I remember, you know, they were wearing, you know, they had pocket protectors and kind of short sleeve shirts and crew cuts and, they came and saw us and, you know, they literally, one of them said, pointed to me and said, what is she doing here? <laughs> and uh, Carl said, well, she's the director of the project. And they sort of looked at me like, like, how did that happen? And then when they started hearing 
you know, the Japanese gamelan music and, you know, the Japanese shakuhachi and all of these different musical traditions. They were like, what is that? Like, what is that? And at the end, I remember one of them saying, uh, so those are the only American entries on the record? No Frank Sinatra, just, you know, blind uh, Willie Johnson and, uh, and Louis Armstrong and Chuck Berry. That's who you have on the record? And we're like, yep, that's, that's who. And Carl was, yep, that's it. And I think they were really appalled. And for, in, in the immediate aftermath, uh, NASA at that time was very, very different than it is now. And I think Carl was a, just a total thorn in their side. And they really kind of resented the record. And then, you know, even, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, I was at JPL and the public information officer took me aside and he said, do you know that even with the Mars landers and this and that, do you know that we get more calls about the Voyager record, more interest in the Voyager record than anything NASA has ever done? And, you know, it's like, wow, that's, that's just great. That's Frank really Sinatra great. must have been furious, though. I bet he had some guys break in and, like, screw one of his seven inches on the side of Voyager. There were some, there were some dead animals on my doorstep. <laughs> but I just chose to, to shake it off, you know? No, no, not at all. But, um, yeah, I mean, it just really, it, it holds up. And uh, that was the idea. Can I ask just one thing? Is it true, that story about Johann Sebastian Bach, that there was a discussion of putting two pieces by him and then Carl said, I think that will be showing off? Actually, you know, I can never remember if that was Philip Morrison or... I don't, you know, there was some wonderful guy, maybe Leslie Fiedler, somebody said at the time, well, we could just send the works, the complete works of... Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, but that would be showing off. And so I think that's the origin of that story. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, that would have been not just showing off, but it wouldn't have been uh, an adequate representation of the music of the world. And uh, so we uh, we decided on just a two, and uh, that was it. We wanted also, you know, we were thinking... We, there's a Peruvian wedding song, which was recorded by the great musicologist John Cohen, who recently died, uh, in the Andes. And it was a 10 or 11-year-old girl singing a cappella with just the, the sound of the Andes all around her. And so we wanted to have a child, our, our famous uh, Chinese piece, Flowing Streams, was recorded by a 95-year-old virtuoso, the sort of Vladimir Horowitz of the stringed instrument called the chin. And he was, he recorded this ancient piece of music called Flowing Streams, which um, a Chinese uh, authority on, on, on Chinese music told me 
that it was one of the oldest pieces of Chinese music going back um, thousands of years. And it was about our relationship to the universe. And so this uh, brilliant uh, virtuoso was murdered soon after making this recording in the Cultural Revolution. And so we have this 95-year-old, you know, we tried to we tried to really make the demographic of everyone who was heard on the record to represent the complete spectrum of, of human experience as best we could. Can I ask how much in the, since then, how much have your thoughts changed on ideas of extraterrestrial life? Have, have things changed your, your sense of, of, of possibilities? In, in that time? Not really, because I feel that we're, you know, although we've made some great uh, leaps uh, in terms in the last 40 years, in terms of, you know, our discovery of all these exoplanets and the cataloging of them, which goes on. Um, but, you know, I am not troubled at all by the Fermi paradox. And uh, one of the reasons is I've had a very... Um, peripheral role in Project Breakthrough, which is the idea of sending a flotilla of a thousand nanocraft. Um, I carry one in my change purse. They're so tiny. And um, these nanocraft have all the capabilities of the Voyagers, Um, but because they're these very small light sails, uh, which we hope to launch in Earth orbit, um, because there's a you know it's a property of light that you know just these these photons just glance off uh, the light sail and propel it ever faster, and they're very lightweight. They can ultimately travel once you're. Out, by, out in the outer solar system, they ultimately travel a significant fraction of the speed of light. And uh, they would overtake the voyagers that have been traveling at roughly 35, 40,000 miles per hour for some 43 years. They would overtake them in four days. And yet they have all the capabilities that the voyagers had. Well, once you know, we hope at, you know, in the distant future to launch them to Proxima Centauri, the nearest star, which has, has planets. And the idea is they're so tiny that they would burn up in the atmosphere of any world of Proxima Centauri, like a shooting star. And so it, that gave me a sense of tremendous humility about thinking about the possibilities of extraterrestrial life. Because after all, if someone from a world of Proxima Centauri was to send the same kind of spacecraft to us, we would see it, if we saw it at all, as a shooting star. And that wouldn't, we wouldn't, um, you know, immediately say that we were being visited. Furthermore, it seems to me that we've only had radio for a little more than a century, a century and a half. So for the four and a half billion years that life 
was on Earth. Before, let's say, 125 years ago, we could have been bombarded with radio signals, and we would know nothing about it because it, they would be totally invisible to us. And so my view is that if you have as many stars as we have in the galaxy and as many worlds, it seems to me that our intellectual development will not end with the techniques that we have now with radio, that there are other possible methods of communication that we just haven't tumbled to yet. And so when people say, well, why aren't they here? And, you know, I don't, I think if you're a spacefaring, an interstellar, inter, even intergalactic spacefaring civilization, then first of all, you don't have to go anywhere to find lunch. You know, you probably solved the issue of lunch long before. And you probably also have a sense of all the different kinds of life that are possible. I mean, on my Insta feed, I just spend, you know, a half hour every day looking at insects and fish and birds that I've never seen before in total astonishment. So I, you know, my view about extraterrestrials are beautiful until proven ugly. And, uh, and we are far too new to this and too young to arrive at any conclusions about, about life in the universe. Sorry. Now, there are two, two other Cosmos series, of course, um, including uh, Possible Worlds, which I haven't seen yet, which is just out. Oh, I'm um, excited for you to see. I, I can't wait to see it. I, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, two things, really. What? Um, so why did you take that daunting challenge on of making another series and then another one after the iconic Cosmos from the late 70s? And, and I also wanted to ask you about what would have surprised uh, Carl now? Because there obviously have been tremendous discoveries. I wonder if you could pick out a few discoveries that you talk about in the new cosmos that were just, you know, completely off your radar and unthinkable in the in the late 70s. Well, uh, as to <clears throat> why another cosmos, why another two cosmoses, um, it's because I felt that someone had to stand up for science, as you have done so brilliantly that it was, especially in the United States, where, you know, I am a casualty of a kind of science teaching in the United States. And I feel that, what a tragedy, you know, and also just, you know, that it's had a calamitous uh, effect on our culture, this alienation from science, this suspicion of science, and, you know, there are, there are ways, science has known sin, there's no question. And it's not as if, um, you know, science is this flawless, perfect thing. It's human, and so naturally it's flawed. But to the extent that our, you know, my society in the United States uh, is, has really not had the joy of of. of, of of apprehending aspects of nature um, and having that as incorporated into a kind of a way of seeing, a way of thinking, 
a way of uh, thinking logically, a way of a, a baloney detection kit, a way of knowing when you're being lied to. And so it seemed to me that if we could uh, communicate that, the methodology of science, which is my favorite part of it, you know, this, this, this because we're such big liars, well, we lie to each other, we lie to ourselves, and our leaders are uh, just, you know, they lie chronically. And so how can you empower people if you have those political beliefs that you really believe in democracy? Um, you've got to do that. And so that was the reason for the second cosmos. And of course, I did it with enormous trepidation, um, the biggest possible shoes to, to, to walk in. Um, but I was very lucky in that I had our original collaborator from the season, from the first season, uh, Steve Soder, who's uh, not only an astrophysicist, but uh, one of the most learned people about many things to collaborate with. And, uh, and you know, I went from network to network until I found Seth McFarlane. And Seth had been so deeply, profoundly influenced by the first season of Cosmos that he was absolutely committed to uh, me getting a hearing at Fox. Now it sounds kind of strange, uh, like a head snap, you know, why Fox? Well, I wanted Fox because that's the people I wanted to talk to and I wanted to present, um, you know, the awesome power of the scientific perspective. And uh, it was seen in over 180 countries around the world. And it was enough of an even commercial success that they were willing to give me uh, another season. And uh, this season, this third season, was inspired by uh, a sense of, of guilt, really, of tremendous guilt. I now have granddaughters and... I look at them and I think, you know, what am I doing so that to prevent them from living in, on a planet that we all would find completely intolerable? And so I was kind of searching my soul and thinking, you know, what gives me hope? Well, what gives me hope is the little bit that we do know about nature through science as well as some of the great heroes of science uh, who in several cases in this new season were willing to stand up in a time of such state terrorism and repression that they were even willing to die for, for science. And uh, telling those stories, I think, are really are good for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, here you, we talk about Voyager and what an achievement. And yet, you know, I nobody knows the names of the engineers who designed the mission trajectories with the kind of technology that comes from the mid-1970s to function so perfectly, so brilliantly, that we're talking 43 years later about how both spacecraft are still functioning, still teaching us, because not only did they give us our, their 
the first reconnaissance of the outer solar system. But they showed us the very shape of the solar system as it moves through the galaxy. And they have more, to, they told us where the heliopause is, where the wind from the sun ends and the interstellar medium begins. And, you know, I just think if you only, if you have a culture where the only people that everybody knows who they are, are people who are really just famous for shopping, then you're gonna, you know, things are gonna get even worse. And so I wanna tell those stories, but I also wanna tell those stories of, of our ancestors who had their backs against the wall and who were able to endure hardships that we can not even really appreciate. They were so awesome. And they endured, they flourished, they were courageous. And now it's our turn because this magnificent history of life on this planet, uh, as we know it now, is in our hands. We are that link in the chain of generations. And now it's our turn to stand up and to face our circumstances unflinchingly, as science does. It's interesting. Because you've talked about breaking down the the walls between disciplines, and you've talked. I was thinking, I was rereading Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors today, and um, I'm so happy. It's such a lovely book, and it's it's actually a signed copy. Simon Singh, the lovely uh, scientist Simon Singh, said, "I found something for you," and it's. Um, but it was there's a line. I was talking to a science teacher friend of mine, and he was at a conference, and he was infuriated by the fact that when the science other science teachers were asked why do we teach science, they answered because it's how things work. And he said, you know, this idea of the loss of story, and there's this the quote that you open one of the chapters with from Schrodinger, which I think is so, who are we? The answer to this question is not only one of the tasks, but the task of science. Yes. And that seems to me to be so much of the drive of all of the projects you've worked on, which is this connection, that these are not separate. This is not, this equation is an equation which is in you and part of you and part of your story. Exactly. And I feel that with all of my heart, Robin. It's true. And, you know, it's not absolute truth because we cannot, you know, we're not going to find that. But that's the great power of science is that it knows it could be wrong. It, it admits that. It gives its highest prizes to the person who can prove it wrong. That's genius. That's an error-correcting mechanism, which I completely revere and we need more of those error correcting mechanisms because the whole tableau of history is so it, it what's tragic about it is that we don't have such error correcting mechanisms in other things that we do do you what do you think are the because at the moment we almost feel sometimes it feels like we're looking at a species divide you know demon haunted world which was such an important book for me and i go back to it and i think all of those lessons that are still unlearned you know when we watch people furious at the idea of having to wear a face mask just to pop into a shop in florida and that's about their own survival as well as of course other people's survival are, are the methods, how are all of you said, you know, using Fox to me seems like the right thing to do, to find the people. How do we manage to work out the way to find the route to those people who sometimes will initially be extremely aggressive in their reactions to some of the evidence-based thinking that's out there? I think humility is at the heart of it. Humility. 
And I think back to one of the miracles that Carl performed. Um, you know, this is going back 35 years, but there was a time in the 80s when creation science, you know, this fake science, this pseudoscience, was being promulgated. And, you know, there were various local school boards that wanted to teach creation science, uh, you know, as equal time with evolution. And Carl went down, I think it was Alabama, to testify as a friend of the court. Um, and the creation science expert who was testifying on the other side wrote to Carl a year later, very long handwritten letter in which he said, you know, it was the fact that you were so humble and kind when I asked you my questions that really disturbed me. And I had to think because you were so you were just so calm and so open to my questions. I had to do this self-examination and I want you to know that I'm getting an education degree now so I can teach biology. And if you hadn't been so, so humble, I don't think that doorway would have opened for me. And I always think about that. You know, it's like, I, I think it's too often the people who try to, to present this view of the world are grinding another axe, are feeling a certain kind of satisfaction in being smarter than the people they're trying to change. And I think it's really, you have to have this profound respect for everyone. And to be able to look them in the eye deeply and listen to what they're saying and understand their motivation. I think that's absolutely critical. Carl, in all the time that I knew him, I never heard him speak to impress anyone with how much he knew, only to communicate. And I think that's part of the secret is being, is first of all, having that kind of feeling in your heart of goodwill and that there's a way to connect with anyone if you're willing if you're willing to open yourself up to that i think that's really critical and so you know i just it's fun to make jokes at people's expense and you know to make them feel stupid but i know that doesn't work with me you know, it just doesn't help me understand something I don't understand. Yeah, I think there's a thread that runs through all your work, which you touch upon there, which is which is optimism, which is, is, is a belief that there is a there is not only something reachable in everybody, but actually there is a much better future reachable for all of us. So are you? Well, I've just said you, you're optimistic, but how I'm... optimistic are you? Because we're in a... We're in a difficult position. We're speaking. We should have been live on stage in front of this beautiful telescope behind me, and we're not. Yeah, you, you've referred to the the uh, not only the pandemic but climate change and the difficulty we have in politics at the moment. Um, do you see that the the tide is beginning to change? And are you optimistic about not only the far future but the next few years, the next five years, ten years? 
I am naturally optimistic. That's my bias. So I have to declare that. I mean, I think my kids think, you know, sometimes that I'm incorrigibly optimistic. But I have taken so much optimism this spring. You know, I've been, uh, I was secluded for the uh, quarantine from the first week in March uh, till just a month ago. And now I only get to see, you know, the people who quarantined themselves in order for us to be together. And um, the demonstrations in the United States and in all over the world have given me tremendous hope because it's almost, and, and the tearing down of those damn statues. Uh, the one, you know, that I saw that happened in England, which just filled me with joy, as well as Robert E. Lee and these other guys. It's, it's really when, you know, there's always a period where people on one extreme side and the other have whole beliefs. But it's when the great middle becomes engaged and suddenly the scales fall from their eyes and they suddenly, we suddenly realize that something terrible has been maintained unconscionably for more than a century, something wicked, something wrong. When people of every description, I, you know, can, can suddenly feel that. That gives me so much hope. I look at the demonstrations in the United States, and you know they are for the most part leaderless. It's not as if some charismatic figure has come, and through their charm and you know powers of persuasion, have suddenly gotten people to do this. It was an internal process that took far too long, and of course we're not home. But it was so widespread, and the demographic was all ages and everyone. That really tells me that we are ready to become who we have to become. In order, you know, because the problems of environmental depredation and injustice, they are intertwined. They are part of the same, uh, you know, selfishness and narcissism and short-sightedness. And the other reason I wanted to do every cosmos was to remind all of us of the timescales of science. Because to me, there is no form of social organization at this moment that internalizes those timescales and thinks of our actions in terms of a hundred years from now, let alone a thousand years from now, and what the consequences for our descendants and for the other species will be. That's what we need. And that's why tearing down that wall between science and society is so critical. Because if we thought in those timescales, we, we would be taking the very first giant step to becoming who we have to become in order to endure. 
thank you so much Anne I think we've we've uh, I hope we're able to do this live one time as well I hope yeah. next next year it will be a wonderful thing to do uh, so many more things to talk about so many things that I hope everyone watching this will now go off if you have not investigated some of the ideas with this if you've not sat down and listened to the golden record which you can do very easily just go on the internet you will find it you're able to listen to it all if you've not read Shadows and, of Forgotten Ancestors and seen what what is it now is it would it be a 2639 episodes of Cosmos yes. 39 hours 39th episode in cosmos and a cosmos book of which i'm very proud called possible worlds which i wrote and um you know uh just please let's do this again i really enjoyed this conversation and i love the work that you both do and really tremendous admiration but but thank you thank you i just want to say thank you Anne, because it's always as you know i'm I'm such a huge fan it's always a great pleasure to talk to you so thank you both of you be well Thank you very much for joining us today. Remember to check out all the other online events as part of Blue Dots Weekend in outer space at discovertheblue.com. Uh, That's so professional. You'd be a professional again, as I said at the start. It's fantastic. I had to conduct Discover myself because I went dot, dot, com. dot com. It's a double dot, man. It's a disaster. There'll be five takes on Radio 4. You know that's going to happen. Um, yeah, so anyway, the uh, I conduct myself. That's how Peter Marshall used to do it as well. Um, and check out all the other live streams as well at Cosmic Shambles Network. That is including... Check out a... again. Check out. It's... Oh, yay, say, say, check out. It's on the script. Hey, everyone, and don't forget, if you uh, if you like science, and I'll tell you what, here, here are a couple of guys who bloody love science. Uh, if you want to know more about stars and all that stuff, then you can just go to uh, cosmicshambles.com. There we go. I even added the, the dot com for you there, Brian. The full. Uh, anyway, it's a new song by a band that well, I am very newfang- much enjoying at the moment and i'll tell you what they are ripping it up and their name is dare i think they're going to be very very big play dare trent um the uh... <laughs> see i could have done for there i'm working on oldham radio now this is a band that really are in terms of the oldham scene they are shaking it up yeah uh, anyway, yeah, Cosmic Shambles. Live at the Hurricane, uh, <laughs> yeah. Hurricane Snooker Club. Yeah. Live at the Hurricane yeah. Snooker Club tomorrow, Saturday yeah. night. First pint of Stella free. Do you remember when we walked past, when we, when we drove past going through Oldham and there was like a really weird, dodgy looking uh, music venue and you went, we should do that on our tour. And then the next day you went, I don't know why I said that. And uh, it didn't get booked as part of the tour. O2, Hurricane Snooker Club. Hang on a minute, what's going on there? <laughs> anyway, yeah. We can commit to it. Yeah, well, I, I, it will be an interesting... It's basically our Blues Brothers tour, isn't it? Where we do the whole, all of cosmology behind chicken wire. <laughs> so, yeah, go and see our Sunday Science Q&A. It's at cosmicshambles.com. And uh, I'll mention again, of course, uh, discovertheblue.com as well. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at cosmic shambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at cosmic shambles. 
or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. Yeah.